Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we're reading the story of David and Bathsheba as told in 2 Samuel 11, 1-5 and 26-27, 2 Samuel 12, 1-9, and Psalm 51, 1-9. We talk about the complacency of David, who stays at home at the time when kings go out to war, and the ways his loss of a sense of responsibility to the community leads him to violate Bathsheba, Uriah, and the will of God. We discuss the complexity of the biblical portrayal of David, who is a great biblical hero and yet a deeply flawed human being, and we wonder whether we have lost the capacity to recognize such complexity today. And we give thanks for the compassion of God who can forgive even so awful a thing as David has done. And yet we wish for more from David, who seemingly makes no attempt to repair the human damage he has done. Forgiveness without reparation and reconciliation feels a little cheap to us, to be honest. And we wish to have seen more from David and from God. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy. Hey, Bobby. It's Bible Worm time again. (laughs) (laughs) it is bubble worm time again look at that i know that's uh the best the best time of the week (laughs) i think so got me you got you and you got the bible we got the bible and we go what what else could you need it's uh it's quite a like uh gossip worthy story we're reading too this is such an interesting text that we've got today so the narrative lectionary gives us second samuel 11 which is the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah. It gives us 11, 1 to 5, and then 26 to 27. So it leaves out a whole bunch, <laughs> like yeah, a so lot of detail. Part of the story, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then we get 2 Samuel 12, 1 to 9. And then we get Psalm 51, 1 to 9. And so there's a lot. This We're kind of moving around in some ways today. It'll be interesting to sort of see how it all fits together. Yeah. Yes, indeed. So I, I did want to say uh, before we get moving on this one that we do have planned a special episode on Bathsheba. We're, we're doing this series, as you well know, on women in the Bible. And so our next woman is Bathsheba. And so we will circle back around to this text, among some other things, sometime in the next few weeks to talk about her perspective, talk about mm-hmm. the story from her perspective. So I have a feeling we're going to feel like we're missing some things in our conversation today, but we are going to come back around to them. Yeah. Yes. I think, and I think I'm really glad that we are because trying to pull out her experience is a whole, is a whole separate conversation from, from the conversation that's, that's happening in the words of the story that we're reading today. So that's exactly right. We're doing that. So our last regular episode was uh, Joshua 24, one to 18, and so we've moved a little bit in the biblical text. I mean, actually, we moved quite a ways. Yeah, <laughs> I say a little bit. Yeah. We've moved a ways. Uh, so what do you think we need to know by way of background to get us ready for this text today? Yeah, I was trying to think about that. And and there's certainly a lot that happens. But what do we really need to know? Right. So already in Joshua, they were in the land of Israel, and they were sort of in the process of taking over the land of Israel. At this point, they have moved past this period where um, things were ruled by judges, and they have moved into a period where they are ruled by a king. David is actually the second king, but uh, better than the first <laughs> by the by the uh, biblical text assessment. Yes, yes. Probably the the best known and most beloved king, certainly um, within the within the Jewish tradition and the whole imagined lineage of the Messiah, you know, is all all comes through David. So David's right. David's really, really important. 
The 12 tribes of Israel are all united as one nation under King David, which is not a situation that actually endures very long. So this is significant. I mean, I feel like I could fill in other things about his personality, but I I don't want to fill in too much because I want to see how he is portrayed in this this story. Yeah. He's a somewhat unlikely king, but again, you know, the biblical text loves the underdog. They never choose the the person that society has endowed with power. Right. And that is the case with David as well. Yeah, so we talked about that story last year in the in 1 Samuel 16 when Samuel anoints David king, goes to the house of Jesse, and seven sons come by. Jesse's like, that's all my kids. <laughs> and then Samuel's mm-hmm. like, no, isn't there? There's got to be one more because there wasn't any of those. And then David's the one, the eighth one out in the field. So exactly right. He comes from sort of humble background, and he proves himself and he becomes quite a mighty and wondrous king, kind of has a rise to power. This text that we're reading today is often thought of as kind of the pivot point in David's king kingship, where it goes from him coming into like power to the decline of David or something like that. Mm. This this text is sort of a, a fulcrum in the David story. That your facial expression suggests to me <laughs> that that might not be as obvious. No, as, I just I don't know. I had say. never really I had never really thought about that. I mean, I just read I a lot of the David story is I see this king who is like kind of impulsive and fervently loves whatever he loves and isn't really interested in decorum or tradition or structure or rules. And that works well for him in some situations and not well in other situations. I don't know. I'll have to think. I think what I I mean is he's lived a little bit of a charmed life up until now. Uh, And maybe that's what, maybe that's a better way of saying it. And so somehow things always kind of work out for him. Yeah. And this text, things are things start catching up with him. Yeah. 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 He has to. He can't be a man child anymore. That's right. Grow up, David. So we'll start here in 2 Samuel 11, and we will make our way through the narrative lectionary text. And I don't know, who knows? Maybe we'll add in something, a verse here and there. We'll just see, see how the Spirit moves. So starting in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, and I am reading in the Common English Bible. In the spring, when kings go off to war... David sent Joab along with his servants and all the Israelites, and they destroyed the Ammonites, attacking the city of Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his couch and was pacing back and forth on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone and inquired about the woman. The report came back, Isn't this Eliam's daughter Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers to take her. When she came to him, he had sex with her. Now she had been purifying herself after her monthly period. Then she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, I'm pregnant, she said. Amy, I'm so interested in this introduction to this little section where the narrator says it's the time when everybody goes off to war and David sent people off to war, but he remained in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Do you read that with a certain kind of a tone. <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? Like, is there a backhanded, <laughs> is there a backhand to that statement? My translation, the NJPS translation, definitely, if you don't put the backhand in yourself, it it puts it in there for you. Mine is, instead of in the evening, late one afternoon, David rose from his couch and strolled on the roof of the royal <laughs> palace. Like, you just picture him sleeping all day, you know, yeah. getting up from his afternoon nap in his bathrobe and strolling around. Yeah, it it seems pretty, um, like, what a contrast yeah. to the situation he has put his troops in. Yeah. And, I mean, if it says this is the season when kings go out to battle, yeah. do they mean by that kings send their troops out to battle or kings go out to battle because David ain't battling anybody. David ain't battling nothing. <laughs> yeah. No, no. The Hebrew He's... there in verse, at the end of verse one, David remained in Jerusalem. The Hebrew is actually Yoshev. David was sitting in Jerusalem, which, mm-hmm. I mean, is also the way you would say he stayed there. But I think, mm-hmm. like, I read that, in, especially in in line with what you were saying about he he's, gets up from his couch and strolls around. Like, mm-hmm. there is definitely a sound to this that, 
it's time for kings to go and do battle. Whatever we think about that, I don't know. But David is not doing that. He's sitting on his couch. He's hanging out in Jerusalem. He's taking strolls in the evening. So, I mean, I have always read this as David's not doing the things that kings are supposed to do. He's sending somebody else to do the things that kings are supposed to do. Is that yeah. is that how you read it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I think you're right. I think when I read it, I saw it more as he's like presumably he could opt to not participate in battles. I don't yeah. know, maybe he couldn't. But he's not doing that either. Like he's just sending other people into harm's way while he does nothing. Yeah. Yeah, it it's he's shirking. He's shirking. So David has been a warrior up until this point in his life, and he has very much been out on the front lines fighting with people. And so I don't know what this text is trying to say. Like, Mm. if there is a moment when you become satisfied in power or you become interested in the trappings of kingship more than in the responsibilities of kingship. And so as soon as that starts to happen, that's when you start to get yourself in trouble or whether there's, there might not be anything so moral as that going on. It might just be saying David David stayed at home. I tend to read it as he sort of got comfortable mm-hmm. and is not is no longer like really doing the things he's meant to be doing. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, because in the previous chapter, they they ha- they engage in battles and are quite successful. I mean, That's so right. I could imagine a scenario in which, yeah, he's he's getting a little too comfortable. So David is strolling. What was your translation? Strolling around. Strolling. Yeah. What is it? <laughs> Yithalech. Yeah. I think in the strolling mm-hmm. about. And so the text says he sees a woman bathing and she's very beautiful. So can you just like I just can't quite even picture like if I was going to make the f- movie of that, how would I stage it? You know what I'm saying? Like what what's she doing bathing on the roof and where's David and or no, yeah, she's not on the roof. Right. Oh, right. You're thinking of that because of the Leonard Cohen song. It sounds like she's on the roof. Oh, yeah. But it doesn't necessarily say she's on a roof. Yeah. So how, how do you picture what is what is happening here? I mean, I guess I picture it sort of like, I mean, I hadn't thought about it too much. I think about it sort of like by by virtue of the fact that he has a flat roof that he can walk around on, he's kind of like peeking in people's proverbial windows. Like, you know, I, yeah. I don't imagine, I don't imagine, Bobby, that people had um, running water in their homes in biblical times. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, bathing may well have been outside and not covered by a roof. And you could just sort of look around and see there's nobody there if you're concerned about modesty. But David has gotten around that by, you know, looking from above. It's a little creepy. That's pretty creepy. And there's something I think there about surveillance or, you know, the king's being been positioned yeah. in a way that he can see into the private lives of people, both literally and metaphorically. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is able to, he has access that he can now abuse and he's not doing the things that he's meant to be doing by way of governing in order to occupy his time. And so that combination right. turns out to be yeah, really Yeah, no, that's such a good point. That's such a good point. He has all these powers of the king and is not doing the responsibilities of the king. If he were doing the responsibilities, he wouldn't have all this leisure time for nonsense. Exactly right. There's a parenthetical, at least it is in the Common English Bible, uh, in verse 4. She had been purifying herself after her monthly period. Mm-hmm. That I've never quite known what to do with in the context of this story. It is a very... I was wondering, too, like, why is that included? I mean... I can tell you modern practices for purification would be to wait a week after the end of your period and then have like a, you know, ritual bath. And then you could go back to sleeping with your spouse. And I mention that because that's would be a, a, at a height of fertility for many people. Mm. So I don't know if that's, what they're getting at, or it seems like a strange detail to me. One way I've heard that interpreted, but I'm not really persuaded by it. I think I might be persuaded more by what you've suggested, is that there is a, not only is there a violation of the 
marriage bond here, but there's also a violation of a purity law here that mm. David is having sex with a woman who is in an impure state. Mm-hmm. But I, it depends on whether, like, the way you were suggesting is that she's completed her time of ritual purification, and so there, there's not a purity issue. It just seems weird to me that the, that this text would be concerned with a purity issue when what like what is happening around it is so right. It's devastating. So, yeah. yeah. No. I. It, yeah, it seems like a, a strange detail to include. So maybe what is happening is that she is ritually purifying herself at the end of her, like after the seven-day waiting period. Mm-hmm. And so that's the reason for the bathing, and also that's signifying her fertility. Yeah. I think I, I think I like I think I like that interpretation. I'm going to go with that one. That's sure. Yeah, let's go with that. So. David sends someone to inquire about the woman, and they come back and they say, isn't this Eliam's daughter Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so, like, he knows who she is. Like, and that that definition, like, here's her, here's her dad, mm-hmm. and here's her husband. Mm-hmm. Like, she is really well-defined for David, and yet he's going to send for her and have her brought to him anyway. I don't know what the question is there. <laughs> that was more just like a little accusation yeah. against David. But what is David doing? Right. Why does he even ask who she is? If, yeah, if he's just going to go take her anyway. If he's yeah. going to go take her anyway. You know, there's a note in my study Bible, the Jewish study Bible, that that it's a little strange that she is named in relationship both to her father and to her husband. Hmm. And that maybe they are both in this army of David's. Uh. I think there's a little question about whether Eliam is or not. I don't know. They give a citation, and I didn't look it up. But so so it could be read as just sort of underscoring the number of relationships that David is yeah. discarding yeah. <laughs> in his decision. I like that because, I mean, the other way of reading it is, like, if David is calculating, which he seems to be, Mm-hmm. And he knows who those two men are, and he knows that he's sent both of them out to war. Mm-hmm. And he knows that mm-hmm. she is vulnerable and doesn't have anyone really looking out for her. That's and true. so he sees a window of opportunity, like, oh, I'm not going to get caught because I know exactly where those two guys are. Right, because I sent them there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now he's using his sort of shirking of his own duty and sending people away as a scheme for taking things and abusing people. Yeah. So it just keeps building on itself. You know, it's interesting. I I opened, part of what I opened with was saying that David always seems kind of impulsive to me. And he does. And in a way, you can see this as an impulsive act, but it's also not. Mm. You know, it's also thinking the kinds, you know, and certainly after he finds out she's pregnant and we don't read the next part, but it's not impulsive at all. It's highly calculated. But you're yeah. if you're if we're thinking about sort of the, yeah, I don't know. that. There's an interesting intersection of those things for me. Yeah. I like thinking about that. Like impulsive in the sense of following one's impulses is not exactly contradictory to being calculating. If you, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm, suddenly I have a desire to do this thing and I'm going to figure out how to do that I have that to make thing. it happen. Right. right. Mm-hmm. I think those can go together. And I think in this, in this text they do go together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Now Bathsheba's role in this is a matter of some – Dispute. I mean, the way the CEB translates it is David sent messengers to take her. When she came to him, he had sex with her. And I mean, I think Bathsheba has probably been portrayed as everything from a seductress who is, you know, bathing provocatively so that she can attract David's attention to a woman who has been forcibly taken and sexually abused. Mm-hmm. How How would you help us think about What's happened here? Is Bathsheba a willing participant, an unwilling participant? How do you read this text? I think that is such an important question, Bobby, and I don't know. I don't Mm. know from reading this what her role is. I certainly didn't imagine that she was being seductive. I mean, the woman was bathing. Right. David wasn't anywhere that one would imagine she would see him. Right. I don't know why she would have guessed someone is probably watching me bathe. Right. But I was like looking at the Hebrew beforehand, like is this language of like forcible 
rape? Is this, you know, I, I, the text doesn't seem to quite react to it that way. I mean, it certainly indicates that there's, there's a problem with this that we're going to talk about, but that's not quite the problem. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer to that question, Bobby, but I feel like it's such a big question. It is, and the history of interpretation has tended to fill in, like there's a gap in the biblical text. I mean, you know how the biblical text is sort of famously gapped, and it leaves out some details you really want to know. And the history of interpretation has often filled that in with Bathsheba as a seductress. My inclination is to think of Bathsheba as purely innocent here, and you know, you come to the king when the king beckons you, and that she is, she is not exercising her own free will here. And so in that sense, it, it is a rape in my reading. But you're exactly right. The text doesn't specify that or even mm-hmm. really. I mean, maybe we're meant to be shocked by what has happened. Certainly, it's a violation of the marriage bond. We just found out she was married. And so David is certainly violating that. But it's not, it's not as clear what Bathsheba's role in it is. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I, my own inclination is to read her as completely innocent in this text and having been abused by a powerful man. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, like, I don't know that that's the only way one can legitimately read it. Yes, I certainly agree with you. I think my question is more like I start from there and then say, is there more, yeah. is there more that I can pull out of it than yeah. that? And that's, that's where I don't know. Yeah. So then the text just tells us that Bathsheba conceives and then tells David, I'm pregnant. And that's going to create a lot of issues for David that get sort of worked out in this part of the text that we're not going to read. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you give us just a little rundown of, of what how the read. pregnancy sort of plays out in terms of the story? Yeah. And before I do that, I had one other thought about that oh, yeah. note in the text about the fact that she's bathing after her period. Mm. that would mean that she definitely wasn't pregnant before. Ah, yes. So if she's pregnant now, it has to be David's because her son, her not her son, God forbid, her husband is at war. He's been gone. And yes, I think yeah. that is, I think that was important. Yeah. yeah thank you. No, for that, that I think that's important to the, to the biblical author. Absolutely. So, so basically it it seems like for the rest of the chapter, David is trying to figure out how to off Uriah yeah. because now he has a problem. Like he has impregnated this other man's wife. He does not want to deal with the consequences of that. And he's a powerful king, you know, and he, he tries to go about it a couple different ways, but it turns out inconveniently for David, Uriah is really a very upstanding man who takes his responsibilities, you know, even though the text tells us he's a Hittite, he is very loyal to the Israelite cause. He is. And he is concerned about where the ark is and if the ark is sort of being appropriately cared for. And he doesn't feel that he should go home and be with his wife during this time because it's it's this heightened time. It's a time of battle. It's a time, you know, of interacting. He Uriah is like doing all the things that that maybe one would want the king to be doing. But <laughs> right, exactly. the contrast is so strong. Anyway, yes. skip to the end of the story. David finally tells the the head of the military forces to put Uriah up front in the battle lines and basically draw back when battle starts so that Uriah will not have support on the field and will be killed. And they do, and he is. It's so interesting to me just listening to you tell that that so the problem with the pregnancy is now there's evidence mm-hmm. that David slept with Uriah's wife. So the first thing he's trying to do is get Uriah to come home and sleep with her so they'll just think the baby's his and it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And so I I mean I don't know what you can make of it but like David doesn't seem to be bothered by what he's done. No. He doesn't seem to be bothered by the possibility that Bathsheba or someone else might claim that he did what he has done. It's just that the fact that there is a baby that is like tangible evidence, that's the thing that gets him so worked up. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's anything there, but it's just like in this in this age of like believe women when they tell you things. And like, I feel like there's a hint in this text that 
it would have been possible for David just to say, like, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. If yeah. she had not become pregnant, he could have just— Yes. No, I think you're exactly right. I think that once there's a pregnancy, there's there's evidence. And he—yeah, he can't pretend this didn't happen. Yeah. Which a- apparently was his plan. Otherwise, he could have talked his way out of it or sort of silenced people— to, right. To get right. Everyone was away at war. There were no witnesses. You know, who? yeah. No, he easily could have wiggled his way out of it. It's interesting to me that he wants Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so that he'll think it's his child. Again, just underscoring, like, David doesn't care that this is his child. Oh, he doesn't even David doesn't bit. care. But, like, he yeah. doesn't care about anything. He just knows that he did something he's not supposed to do, and he's trying to get out of it. Yeah, that's exactly All the way right. to the point of having Uriah killed. Like, right. It's, it's, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. So the text tells us in verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah was dead, she mourned for her husband. After the time of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her back to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But what David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes. Mm. So it seems like, I think you're right, that David, David was not strategizing to marry Bathsheba originally. But this is sort of where they have where they have come at this point. So, the next right thing to do, I don't know what. How do you take? How do you understand this marriage? Why does he marry Bathsheba? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I um, I guess you could read it either as sort of as you're saying, like if the pregnancy was a problem before, it might be less of a problem now that the person who would be most upset about it is dead. Right. But it's still a problem socially, you know, that there's evidence that he committed adultery. I think that would look bad for him. Or you could imagine that he is so taken by Bathsheba that that since this has happened, though he wasn't going to go all the way here, since fate forced his hand. <laughs> yeah. He might as well um he might as well go all the way and marry her. I don't know. Yeah. How do you, how do you understand it? Uh, I mean, I think that I, I think I'm I'm with you that that was not his original plan. Now that it what has happened has happened. I think he thinks of this as sort of like doing the right thing, you know, like I got somebody pregnant so I can marry her. Of course he already has a number of wives and so she becomes part of his like cadre of wives. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I wonder if at the end of middle of verse 27, she became his wife and bore him a son. I wonder if David kind of thinks like that wasn't that big a deal. You know what I mean? Like that, that turned out all right. Mm-hmm. And he feels like maybe he managed to like land the plane safely. Mm-hmm. And then you just get that last line. But, but what David had done was evil in the Lord's eyes. So, we know that it's not turned out okay, but David, I think, maybe thinks like, oh, David yeah, okay. doesn't know that yet. I yeah, no, that. I think that's exactly right. I think David thinks that he dodged a bullet. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. He ended up with mm-hmm. a beautiful wife. Got a Has another kid. son. Great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's right. Hi, I'm Terry Peterson, minister of St. John's Church of Scotland in Gurich, west of Glasgow on the Scottish coast. And I am the liturgy writer for Bible Worm, which means I get to spend a lot of time listening to Bobby and Amy, and that is a great joy. It is fascinating to hear them read and talk through stories I thought I knew pretty well since I'm starting my third time through the narrative lectionary now. I always come away with more ideas than I can fit into a liturgy or a sermon, and working with them has deepened my own spiritual life as I write liturgy that follows the contours of their conversations. I appreciate that they don't shy away from the difficult parts, and that they always find connections between these ancient texts and our contemporary life. And it's fun for me to work those connections into liturgy that empowers worshiping communities to speak to and about God in new ways. If you join the Bible Worm Patreon at the Liturgy Worm level or higher, you'll have access to those liturgies and prayers that you can use or adapt, as well as early access to the podcast. Or there are other levels with different benefits, including Bible studies, access to the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Bible Worm Podcast 
to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this incredible resource for people of faith around the world. And now back to this week's podcast. So I think that sets the stage for us to read chapter 12, which is the story of Nathan coming to David, the prophet Nathan. So I'm going to start out by reading one through the very beginning of seven. Okay. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When Nathan arrived, he said, there were two men in the same city, one rich, one poor. The rich man had a lot of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing, just one small ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised that lamb, and it grew up with him and his children. It would eat from his food and drink from his cup, even sleep in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to visit the rich man, but he wasn't willing to take anything from his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had arrived. Instead, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the visitor. David got very angry at the man, and he said to David, As surely as the Lord lives, the one who did this is demonic. He must restore the ewe lamb seven times over because he did this and because he had no compassion. You are that man, Nathan told David. Dun, dun, dun. So in good biblical fashion, Nathan tells a parable. I really love this parable, actually. And I just love, one of the things I love about this is the way that Nathan describes the relationship between the poor man and his sweet little lamb. Oh my goodness, it's so tender. I know. He raised it with his children. It would eat from his food and drink from his cup and sleep in his arms. My translation says it would nestle in his bosom. (laughs) I love that. Like a picture like my little... My drink, like feeding a little lamb out of my cup. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's we so shouldn't sweet. laugh at this. No, it's, it's so, I mean, it's so, so, so sweet. It is very sweet. I mean, I think it's supposed to be a little overdrawn, right? Because it yeah. makes the parable land. But I think I just love like, oh, little lamby. <laughs> my favorite little lamb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this guy has, I mean, the text, Nathan's parable says the poor man had nothing. Like the the little ewe lamb is the only thing that he has. And, but he loves it so much that he's like, he's not going to eat it or anything. So like he's putting his resources into raising this lamb as one of his children and he has nothing else. I just, I think that's so sweet. It is. And it's really interesting to, I don't know, just notice as you're as you're doing what what the story emphasizes like it tells us that he is a poor man and he doesn't have anything yeah but what it emphasizes is not that yeah it's not like what that he goes to bed hungry but he won't eat his lamb or he does any like it's not it's not that kind of story really it's just this lamb is a really big thing for you know yeah what he does with his time is love this lamb (laughs) Yeah, loves it. Mm -hmm. So the rich man who lives next door has a friend who's coming. (laughs) This guy's such a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's got his own big old flock. He's like, I don't want to give up anybody from any of the lambs from my flock for my guest who's coming over to my house. So he steals the lamb from the the sweet lamb from the neighbor. From the bosom of the other guy. (laughs) Yeah, he rests him away. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just in the story itself like any thoughts about that the mean rich man just I hanging mean, like with the story itself it, it's just I think my main thought other than I agree with David's assessment that he is demonic <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> which what did you say the translation was a son of death yeah the Hebrew is Ben Mavet which just means Ben Mavet like literally a son of death or like belonging to death or something how does your yeah. translation mine says de- he deserves to die yeah but I like that emphasis like the real those are some strong words he's like what is the matter with this guy yeah for real yeah but again like I think it's interesting that this story doesn't do anything to really tell us anything about this guy other than he's rich and there's this incredibly beautiful relationship that a poor man has with his yeah. lamb, and he doesn't care. He just takes it for 
really yeah. no good reason at all. Yeah. You get the impression he's got a field full of his own lambs. He's not particularly emotionally attached to them. They're just nope. like the lambs in his flock. But he just, for whatever reason, doesn't want to give up any of his possessions. And he's yeah. willing to do this thing to his neighbor. Does this... Okay, I might be jumping to the end here. So so you can put a pin in this question. But I just, I have to ask you this. Does this, par- does this actually seem like a parallel to what has happened to you? You want to put a pin in that? No, I think that's a really, like, that's an, the, an important question. I think it's the next right question, which is, how does this map on mm. to the story that has just been told? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting because it's got to be far enough away that it's not so transparent that David immediately understands what what Nathan is doing. Because mm. you've got to get David all worked up and then trap him in his own situation. But it's an yeah, interesting question true. of how does it map. I mean... So <laughs> ignoring the fact that women in this text are being compared to sheep. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just put that aside. That's fine. <laughs> you know, I feel like Uriah, I don't know if Uriah's poor, but he's not really anybody. Mm-hmm. And he's got one wife that he loves very dearly, apparently. I mean, we don't, we don't have any insight into that, but that's what one takes from this story, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. David's got all the wives and women you could want. He doesn't really care that much. He's got all the rich, richness and power, and yet he chooses to go and take the wife of another man when he could have had a wife from his own harem or he could have had somebody else. I mean, it sort of maps on, but I'm curious what... I take your question to mean you don't really think it... I mean, it, no, it's, it, does, it sort of maps on. It sort of maps on. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby, I have this note. I should... Never mind. (laughs) I wrote down and now I'm like, Amy, what's the matter with you? (laughs) You can only eat a lamb once. (laughs) So another another way that the parallel is not not, you know, quite anyway. (laughs) I think that I think what felt a little bit off to me was like if the rich guy had all these lambs but was like, but that lamb over there looks especially delicious and I'm just going to take it because it looks better than my lambs. Mm -hmm. That seems like more of a parallel situation. Like I don't read David's story as greed in the sense of, I don't know, it just doesn't quite, it it doesn't quite map in that way. But that to me just underscores like maybe that's not the right thing to pay attention to. Like yeah. maybe the thing to pay attention to is there's this really dear relationship between <laughs> two creatures <laughs> 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 that someone is coming in from the outside who really could care less about relationship. They're not, they don't have a relationship with their own creatures and they're not going to have a relationship really with this one either. Yeah. Just for the sake of convenience or some other lesser goal. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that I think that's right. And that there isn't the emphasis. Like David does seem to think that Bathsheba is particularly attractive. And what that says about his own feelings about his, his other wives, I, I don't know. But that's you're right. That's not in the story. The story is more just I don't want to take anything out of my what I already have. I want mm-hmm. I would rather take something that belongs to someone else. Mm-hmm. But I think, yeah, I think the the general point that David has all the power and all of the possibilities and he's already got a whole bunch of wives and yet he chooses to take the dear spouse of another, mm-hmm. uh, just indicating the degree to which he is uh, like- Drunk with power. Drunk with, I mean, he has, he's demonic. He himself says. Yeah. Yeah. That guy's demonic and he's accusing himself. Like that guy's awful. and Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is really awful to steal another man's beloved wife and then and then murder him, which also doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, that's another thing that, that doesn't happen. Like the story could, David Nathan could have gone on and said, then the man came home and was upset. And so David killed him. <laughs> or not David, but the rich man killed him. Like David is actually a lot worse than the guy in the parable whom he, he has called demonic. Yeah. Why do you think Nathan 
tells David this story instead of just saying, look, David, Mm -hmm. the thing you did was really awful. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a great question. I mean, I wonder if at this point in his kingship, David has, I mean, I said before drunk with power, but if he has sort of reached the point in his own hubris or his own sense that he is, he has the right to satiate his appetites or whatever, that like all that stuff would have gotten in the way from being able to see another perspective here. Like he was so yeah. locked into his perspective as the person in power that that Nathan felt like he had to take a side door. I think that's right. And I think that's interesting and, and true to human nature in a lot of ways. Yeah. That David can immediately see the evil that someone else has done in a way that he apparently cannot recognize the evil that he himself has done. He's just unable to see. And like, it just seems true to my own experience that it's much easier to recognize when someone else is doing something awful <laughs> than to like be self-reflective about our own awfulness. I was thinking actually, as I was, you know, thinking through that, that very question earlier today, like, I think that is part of what's so powerful for me about, you know, we talk all the time about when you read troubling things in the biblical text, find it in the world. But I think when it is held up in the biblical text, it is a lot easier for us to see it and be horrified by it, in part because it's a story with some distance from us, but also in part because we have high expectations for what ought to be happening in this text. Yeah. But yeah, maybe it's just a human thing. Humans need a little distance from it, so our ego can kind of— Stay calm. Stay calm, ego. Certainly, it seems like David needed somebody else to be angry with in order to understand his own wrongdoing. Yeah. So Nathan goes on then in verse 7 and says to David, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from Saul's power. I gave your master's house to you and gave his wives into your embrace. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that was too little, I would have given even more. Why have you despised the Lord's word by doing what is evil in his eyes? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife as your own. You used the Ammonites to kill him. Because of that, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own, the sword will never leave your own house. So here here is Nathan sort of responding to the Like now that David's eyes have been opened to you are that man, here's Nathan's way of making the connection between God's judgment of David and the parable that he's just told. What do you see in that description of why God is judging David? What's so striking to me about the description is that, okay, I'm sure this is I'm sure there's a more eloquent way to say this, but like God sort of made it all about God. Like (laughs) there's no like, it's almost like it's become an abstraction from what David actually did. Yeah. And the, I mean, he mentions Uriah, but, but really the bulk of it is like, after everything I did for you, let me remind you what those things were. You have done what is displeasing to me. Yeah. And that always feels a little, I don't know, jarring to me in the text here. I guess I'm just so caught up in the human story. But I feel like it just flips into a different register here without ever really addressing, like, very directly. Like, I feel like there should be more conversation here. Maybe I'm too into, like, talk therapy. But, like, (laughs) I feel like there should be more conversation about what actually happened here. But there's really not. It just, uh, there's really not. Yeah. It, is, it really is the sense of how could you have done this to me that God seems to be saying when, and I mean, Bathsheba herself is almost completely erased here. Like she gets mentioned, you struck down Uriah the Hittite and took his wife as your own. But it, do, it really does seem like the offense is, be, is between David and God. Like, yeah, the thing that has happened is bad, but the reason that it's bad is because David has been disappointing to God or something like that. Yeah. 
the punishment that's announced in verse 10, which is not technically part of the narrative lectionary, is that because you despised me, that is, despised God, and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own, the sword will never leave your own house. And so there's a little bit of a sense here, at least initially, of because you acted violently against that person, violence is going to come back on you. Mm-hmm. What do you do with that statement of the punishment? I hadn't, so since it was not officially in the narrative lectionary, I hadn't read it alongside the story today, but mm-hmm. it's it's got a real doom to it. Like the sword yeah. will never leave your house. Yeah. That's, and I, I think, you know, it's, it's incredibly poetic that it, you know, that you, they can tie the, you know, that you have, whatever. It's, it's a lovely turn of phrase and super creepy <laughs> and vague and like all the things that you want the threats you, you make to be so, <laughs> so that they have a lot of impact. Yeah. But yeah, this is, um, this is, this is quite a threat. Maybe that's why the narrative lectionary left that out is because, <laughs> because it's a, I mean, it is quite a threat. And it kind of does actually happen to David in, in, a, in its own way. Mm-hmm. And not quite this directly, but, you know, like the things that happen in David's family from here. And Amnon mm-hmm. rapes his sister Tamar and then Absalom kills Amnon. And then mm-hmm. Absalom rebels against David and then is killed in battle. And then like his family really does like completely fall apart from this story for the rest of Second Samuel, like there is certainly a way of reading this text where this thing that David has done with Bathsheba and Uriah results in kind of the the unraveling of his of his whole family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so oh, this is such a tough reading because it skips around. So I tried to give a quick summary of the parts of chapter eleven we didn't read. Yeah. Now there are parts of chapter twelve we're not going to read. That's true. What what else happens? Amy, <laughs> I have happens? such a hard time not reading text. <laughs> I just want to keep reading them. But, you know, in some ways, I think the way the narrative lectionary is structured this week is that Psalm 51 is going to be a response to what has just happened. Yeah. But what actually happens, I mean, in chapter 12 here is a little disappointing to me because David says, I've sinned against the Lord. Like, so he gets it. But that's his one sentence. I sinned against the Lord. And then the very next line in verse 13, uh, Nathan says, the Lord removed your sin. You won't die. And then, but then he says, but the baby's going to die. And so then the baby dies. And so like, I just find this really disappointing that David has a one line like, oh, I sinned against the Lord. Not I sinned against Bathsheba or I sinned against Uriah, but just like, there's no reconciliation. There's no like acknowledgement of like specifics of wrongdoing. It's just like, I sinned against you, God. And then God's like, okay, never mind. Mm-hmm. I think it's all fine. I don't, anyway. Yeah. God's a little disappointing to me in this text. I don't know. That's not exactly it. Like I, I, I love that God in this text uh, and God in the biblical tradition is a merciful and forgiving God. I appreciate that very much. When I read this story and I think about what has happened to Bathsheba and to Uriah and to this innocent baby that was the product of that event, I just feel like there needs to be more reconciliation on the human level in addition to the forgiveness at the divine level. I think that's what I'm struggling with. Yeah. The humans in this text end up being sort of ways of talking about how David has sinned against God. I I think that's what's really challenging for me too is that there's no real grappling with what he has, like, he doesn't really grapple with what he's done or reflect on, like, why did I do that? Like, what <laughs> what went wrong in my mind or my heart that suddenly I thought this was okay? Yeah. There's no, and there's, there's no, certainly no, you know, apology to other humans, but not even, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not, it just is not a great model of that, you know, that, word in my community would be tshuva. Like mm-hmm. you have to, you have to turn back and repair what you have broken. Yeah. So Psalm 51 in some ways is an attempt, I think, to address that issue. Mm-hmm. Psalm 51 has a heading in the Hebrew that describes it as a Psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him just after he had been with Bathsheba. 
And so this psalm is meant to be read in relationship with the story that we just read in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So we're just reading 1 to 9. Mm-hmm. Here's the text. Have mercy on me, God, according to your faithful love. Wipe away my wrongdoings according to your great compassion. Wash me completely clean of my guilt. Purify me from my sin. Because I know my wrongdoings. My sin is always right in front of me. I've sinned against you, you alone. I've committed evil in your sight. That's why you are justified when you render your verdict, completely correct when you issue your judgment. Yes, I was born in guilt, in sin, from the moment my mother conceived me. And yes, you want truth in the most hidden places. You teach me wisdom in the most secret space. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and celebration again. Let the bones you crushed rejoice once more. Hide your face from my sins. Wipe away all my guilty deeds. So if we read this psalm as sort of a continuation of that narrative that we were reading, I mean, it's not exactly that, right, in the... Mm -hmm writing of the text. But in the Bible, this is sort of a an attempt, I think, to give David some voice that maybe we were missing in 2 Samuel 12. Does this confession or what, I mean, that's how I would describe it. I don't know how you would describe it. But does it answer any of the concerns that you were having about teshuva, changing one's ways? Or does this seem like more of the same What do you think about what David is saying here? This psalm does not solve my problems. Mm. I think I I read it as both sort of too too heavy in a way. Like I was born with iniquity, like this sort of fatalist, like I give up. This all happened to me before I was born. Like, and at the same time, too light because then you're not really taking responsibility for what you've done. You're just saying like, Mm. I am a lowly creature who is lowly and I hope you'll have mercy on me. And, and that to me is just not what a good apology looks like. Yeah. I don't know. I don't see, I don't see, I don't feel like I see genuine regret in here. I feel, I see feeling really bad about yourself. Yeah. But I don't see that as the same thing as, owning what you've done and regretting it and like trying to trying to put yourself in a position so you won't do it again like trying to actually change through this process i feel like this just puts the responsibility of all of that on god which is not to say i don't think we need god's partnership in making those kinds of changes having those transformations but i i don't know Are you more moved by this psalm? Tell me something moving about this psalm. (laughs) Well, I mean, I like this psalm, but I think I agree with everything that you've just said. Like to me, this psalm in a sense is one nice part of what needs to happen for there to be reconciliation, but it is not the whole thing. And I feel that lack of genuine repentance and reparation at the human level, I feel that really strongly when I read this psalm. If that were also there, Mm -hmm. then I think the psalm has a Mm -hmm. lot Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to value. Yes. Yes. I love the, like, just acknowledging before God that that he's a sinner and uh, not deserving of being forgiven, but that God's compassion and mercy is more powerful than our capacity for messing things up. Like I, I think that's a really lovely sentiment. And we're not reading it here, but in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and faithful spirit within me. Like David has this sense of he's not capable of getting all the way there himself, mm-hmm. but that God is capable of transforming him. I think that's a really, really lovely idea. And I, and I think that's good theology. And you see that in other places in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament as well. I agree with you that the, like, I'm rotten to my core and I was born in guilt. Like, like okay, like people are kind of by our nature screw-ups. Mm-hmm. But I think you're exactly right. That can be used as a way of almost saying, like, I couldn't really help what I did because that's just who I am. And so I want to see him. I want to somehow I want there to be taking responsibility there. 
So, yeah, I mean, I think I'm in a similar place to you of this seems like good reconciliation between David and God. There's a whole human Mm. world that has not been addressed in any way in the text that we have read. And I feel that lack very strongly. When we were talking with the Bible Room Collaborative about this text, the parallel that came to mind for me was like, you know how there's these mega church pastors occasionally get caught having sex with somebody they're not supposed to be having sex with, mm-hmm. and they get in trouble for a minute, and then they give some speech about how they shouldn't have done it, and they're they're a sinner, and God's forgiving, you know. And then that then it's like everything's okay, and you're a wonderful person because you confessed. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, but that's no, <laughs> right? Like, there's a whole human side that has to get corrected, and like this is not just like let me sin so I can demonstrate how loving God is. Like mm-hmm. hmm. And this text reminds me a little bit of that. Like David is a mega church pastor who's slept with somebody he shouldn't. And so he may have culpas publicly and then it's great. So. I think you're, yeah. the way you're talking about it is helping me see that, see how important this part of it really is though. But this for me at least is like comes I maybe it doesn't matter what order things happen in but like skipping to this is it, it like almost makes it in my mind like a mockery of the whole idea of yeah. confession and regret and shuva yeah. like if if you just skip right to saying like oh yeah we're all full of sin and I am too so god help me I mean if you if you go through a whole process of like trying to do the work and actually real like you have to I feel like you have to come to that realization again every time as you actually try to sift through what did I do like how did I how did that happen and what was yeah. the impact of my actions and it's a really painful process sometimes yes. it certainly would be in this case and so when you arrive at a psalm like this, when you arrive at this point in the process, you are like on your knees, like really realizing that you have maxed out your capacity and you need help. And yeah. I think since we didn't see the rest of that process, it feels cheap. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe the rest of the process was there. Who knows? Yeah. But it. But that that other stuff is really important. This is a this has to be a capstone to something. This can't be yeah. the whole thing. I think that's exactly right. I think for myself, I'm not sure as if I'm quite as concerned about order. But I think I mean I get I take your point. Um, but I, I do think sometimes people need to feel forgiven so that they can go into the world mm. and repair things that have been broken. And so mm. sometimes, like saying God. Mm-hmm is okay with you, but, and now you need to go make things okay with other people. I think that can work too. Yeah. But I definitely feel that this is part of a process and that in the text we've read today, David has not done the other part of the process. And a little bit, the fact that he's David (laughs) makes me like, I have high expectations for him. And like, he does get away with stuff. Like he does need to realize. Um, I think I'm feeling that. I think I'm feeling that strongly too. Yeah. Amy, we've just talked about Psalm 51 in broad sweeps. Is there anything particular about the psalm that you want to pull out or draw attention to? I'll say, I don't know if this is very particular, but I'll say one one other thing about Psalm 51 that a little bit contradicts what I was saying before, but but I'm going to try to come at it from the other angle because I came down pretty hard, <laughs> pretty hard on this psalm. But if we imagine that there was, there is some additional process to this and this psalm isn't sort of standing on its own. The sort of, I, I want to say like the passivity of this psalm or this sort of like handing yourself over to mm. God that happens in this psalm is, I think, also really beautiful and true. Like it, I mean, yes, we have to be careful that it doesn't actually make us just passive forces in the world. But I, I think the recognition at a certain point that, I don't know, that that we are are shaped and, I don't know, washed seems such a <laughs> weird, you know, there's a lot of like metaphors here of like yeah. washing clean by some force that is so much, so much bigger than we are is, I don't know. I'm, I, I generally find that really moving. It's just, I, I think honestly, it's reading this right after the, the sections yeah. of the David text that we read that, that I'm, I'm feeling what's lacking more than what's there. 
I think that's right. I also like to me the most beautiful part of this psalm is verses ten to twelve, which mm-hmm. were which is not part of our text for today, but just kind of relying on God to create something better in us than we are able to create for ourselves. And I feel like there's something really rich to that. Yeah. Okay, Amy. So I'm curious as you're, we've got a little bit of a diversity of texts today from the Bathsheba and Uriah incident to Nathan's prophecy. And now this Psalm, as you're thinking about these texts and our world, our communities, what are you taking away as important message for, for this week? You know, I think that for all of our correct, I think, complaints about the way that David gets off pretty easily, it's also not so common in the biblical text, especially in in Samuel, to have the text so clearly critiquing a character who overall is, you know, David is like the king. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's he's the best one. And and the text does not shy away at all from saying like he did something bad. He did a yeah. bad thing. And I think I think there's real power in that. And I don't I I'm worried about saying that because I don't want to say that like people in power should be able to do bad things and we should be entertained by it or we should you know, let it go. But I think that it shows a, a, a vulnerability in David that sort of mm. refuses, for me, refuses the possibility of just having him as a symbol. And it's so yeah. easy for our leaders to just become symbolic. And he he has a big personality and he makes some real mistakes. And he has, you know, a lot of sadness in his life that maybe comes directly from this judgment from God that the sword will be in his house. Mm-hmm. And I think holding those two things together, having a having a very complicated person, I'm, you know, I'm talking myself in circles, Bobby, because now I'm like, oh, I don't know, this could get us in trouble. So this won't preach. Don't preach this, people. But <laughs> <laughs> I am interested in the fact that this, that the biblical text doesn't try to make it clean for us. Yeah. It doesn't make it clean. David is the king, and David does a bad thing, and they're both true. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's really important, Amy. I agree with you that that's like there's multiple sides and multiple ways that that cuts. That can go, yeah. The the last, you know, you don't hear very many public figures acknowledge wrongdoing any longer. You know, people are just pretend like they didn't do anything or what they did was fine or like mm-hmm. this idea of public accountability and sort of an honest reckoning with what one has done. I feel like that's pretty unusual in this day and age. And I also agree with you that if we hold our leaders up as ideals, like no person is ever going to be ideal. And so we have to be able to recognize the complexity of people. I think that I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. Hopefully it won't include murder, though. (laughs) Yeah, David's really bad. Yeah, yeah, David really takes it to another level. So, yeah, yeah, tamp it down a little bit. What are you thinking, Bobby, as you read this myriad of texts about this story? I'm thinking about sweet little Lammy. Mm. That that poor guy. No. The sweet little lamb who was resting in his bosom. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I just got stuck there, and I that's, that's all I can think about. No, I mean, I I think I, I've i got a lot, a lot of thoughts about this text, but the one, one that keeps coming back for me is the very beginning of that text where it's describing how David seems to have kind of gotten complacent in his position, mm. and he is no longer trying to do what one is supposed to do. I mean, I don't know how I feel about kings going out to war being the mm-hmm. thing you're supposed to do, but like David has a job as the king for protecting the people and making sure that everyone is safe. And he's just farmed it out to some other folks. And that's the thing that starts this whole problem is mm. David got lazy. He got comfortable in his authority and his power and just realized he could do stuff if he wanted to. And 
that's where the opportunity for his bad actions to mm-hmm. express themselves comes from. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't quite know. Like, yes, I mean, people are bad and people, like, we sin and we do wrong things. And also, like, you could kind of see this one coming. And I think that we can sort of see see it coming in our own lives and our own communities when we stop thinking about the common good and we stop thinking about what responsibilities we have to each other and to ourselves, what responsibilities we have to the relationships and the integrity of life to go back to our Ten Commandments episode of of others. Mm -hmm. And David seems to just have gotten so full of himself that none of that matters. And then we start down this trajectory. I am glad there is available to him and I'm glad there is available to us this confession and that things can be made right with God. And one hopes that in some other non-written <laughs> tradition that somehow David tried to make amends with the human people in his life as well. But also there is a world in which one does not get oneself into such a situation because we remember that we are people in a community and that mm-hmm. we have responsibilities to, to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I think there's that's a takeaway from this text is mm-hmm. just being a little careful about getting too comfortable with where we've come. The, the, journey's never, the journey's never done. And so continuing to be responsible to the people and places and communities that we're responsible to. I love that, Bobby. I love thinking of... Our, our responsibilities as part of what sort of is like the, the what keeps in check some of our appetites, you know, yeah, like you, exactly you, you can't just go do whatever <laughs> right. because you have responsibilities. And theoretically, the more power and resources you have, the more responsibilities you have. That's so right. they should right. stay roughly balanced to each other. But once you you reach a point where you feel like you don't actually have to fulfill those responsibilities, then it's too much. There's nothing to nothing to um, check our appetites. That's exactly right. All right, Amy. Well, next week we are continuing on in the stories of the kings. We'll be discussing uh, David's son Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 3. All righty. <laughs> I look forward to it. All right. See you then. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Join us next time when we'll be reading the story of Solomon's wisdom as told in 1 Kings 3, 4-28. Until then, keep on digging.